Rob Billot is a partner in the Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky offices of the law firm Taft, Satinius & Hollister, LLP, where he has practiced in the environmental and litigation practice groups for over 31 years. Rob has handled and led some of the most novel and complex cases in the country involving damage from exposure to PFAS, including the first individual class action mass tort and multi-district litigation proceedings involving PFAS, recovering over one billion for clients impacted by the chemicals. In 2017, Rob received the Right Livelihood Award known as the Alternative Nobel Prize. He is the author of the book Exposure, Poisoned Water, Corporate Greed, and One Lawyer's 20-Year Battle Against DuPont, and his story is the inspiration for the 2019 motion picture Dark Waters, starring Mark Ruffalo. Rob's story and work is also featured in the documentary The Devil We Know. Rob Billet, welcome to One Planet Podcast. Thank you for having me. So we're speaking on World Water Day. Helping ensure that our water isn't full of contaminants has really been part of your life's work. Your environmental fight with DuPont is chronicled in your book, Exposure, which was also the inspiration for the feature film, Dark Waters, the documentary, The Devil We Know. So during those two decades, did you ever think of quitting and what kept you going? You know, no, it was a pretty incredible journey to say I guess having dug into the documents and seeing the facts of what we were uncovering during that 20-year process, starting to realize that this was a massive public health threat, you know, something that was impacting not just one farm, one family, and one community, but likely contamination of the entire planet, virtually every living thing on the planet, just really realizing it was incredibly important to get this story out and to make sure that people were aware of what was what was happening, what was continuing to happen. And it was a long process. It took over two decades to get this story out. But throughout that entire time, I kind of kept hearing in the back of my mind the voice of Wilbur Tennant, the, the farmer from West Virginia who first came to us back in 1998, convinced there was a serious problem going on in his community and really just determined to make sure that the, the truth, the facts got out about what was happening so that people could take steps to protect themselves. So throughout the whole process, you know, I just kept hearing in the back of my, my head, the voice of Mr. Tennant saying, people need to know what really happened here. People need to, to know this so that things can be done to make sure it never happens again. It's so moving to think, and you yourself going into the communities and seeing firsthand those effects, I can't imagine. But as you also mentioned, it's something with this uh, PFAS and PFOAs that we all have in different degrees in our bodies already, which is kind of amazing to think of. Yeah, it's kind of a scary thought, frankly, but you know, we've got these completely man-made chemicals called PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkylated substances, quite a mouthful, but you hear them referred to now as forever chemicals, because these chemicals, you know, none of these existed on the planet prior to World War II. So they're a fairly recent invention, and they have this unique chemical structure that makes them incredibly useful in a lot of different products, manufacturing operations, but also that same chemical structure makes them incredibly persistent and incredibly difficult to break down once they get out into the environment, into the natural world, into our soil, into our water. They simply 
many of them, particularly the ones with eight or more carbons in their structure, don't break down under natural conditions, or it may take thousands or millions of years for those chemicals to start breaking down. But not only that, once they get into us, they get into people, they tend to accumulate in our blood and build up over time. They not only persist, but they bioaccumulate. And unfortunately, as the science has slowly been revealed to the world about what these chemicals can do, we're seeing that they can have all kinds of toxic effects. And unfortunately, we're finding that those things can happen at lower and lower dose levels. So we've got these man-made chemicals now permeating our environment, in our soils, in our water, in plants, in animals all across the globe. And unfortunately, also getting into all of us. Almost 99% of the people on this planet now have these chemicals coursing through their blood. And children are born pre-polluted with these chemicals now. So it's, it's an incredibly concerning and one that's pretty unprecedented in its scope and magnitude of the contamination that we're dealing with here. Particularly as we find that some of the health effects that scientists are starting to, to see associated with these chemicals may be things like impact to our immune system and possibly even decreasing effectiveness of vaccines. You know, when you think about that, here we are dealing with still the, the worldwide pandemic, and we've got these man-made chemicals in our drinking water, in our soil, in food, in products, in our blood that may have those kinds of impacts on us, decreasing our immune system, decreasing effectiveness of vaccines. So there, the entire scientific community worldwide is now very concerned about making sure that we thoroughly understand what these chemicals are, what they can do, and most importantly, what we can do to protect people going forward. You know, unfortunately, we've had 70 years of these chemicals being spewed out into our world without many of us even knowing it was happening or even knowing that these chemicals were there. They can't be seen, they can't be smelled, they can't be tasted, yet we all were exposed. And, the, and we now have this massive pollution throughout the globe. So we really need to start understanding exactly what do we do about it now? How can we, how can we address what's already out there and, and, and take steps to minimize the threat to, to people and the environment? Yeah, and your work is so important. What is troubling for, I think, a lot of people is, is also the complexity, because as you say, you might be able to test for one chemical, and it's great when you can actually find that source, and if you could stop it, phase it out, although I don't know why it takes so long to sometimes phase it out when we even have doubts about things, but what is you have this complexity when there's a lot of different chemicals, we don't know how they interact with each other. They might be fine on their own, but as we know, combinations of things create a whole other problems so and I had heard this statistic and I maybe correct me on this is I heard that we only test for in our drinking water we only test for fewer than a hundred chemicals is, is that correct because there's a you lot know, more than that right yeah as, as we know there are tens of thousands if not more chemicals out there in our world being manufactured and have been manufactured and of course it varies by what country you're in, what jurisdiction you're in, but there's a very, very small number of those chemicals that are what we call regulated 
in any sense. You know, things that have any sort of health limits, for example, drinking water limit or a soil limit or any kind of standards. There's a very, very small set of those chemicals that we even test for or even know how to test for. So I think most people, particularly in the United States, for example, we assume when we turn the tap on and, and water starts to come out of our sink, we just assume, well, some, somebody's been testing that to make sure there's nothing harmful there. And the reality is we're only testing for the certain limited number of chemicals that we actually know to test for. for it. And even with those, you know, there's, it's, it's fairly limited information about how to test for them, at what level. You know, the, the PFAS chemical story is, is you know, a classic example of, of sort of the, the problem with that system. Here you have hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals in this class that are uh, viewed as being of concern because of their chemical structure and the toxicity data and the information that's been generated uh, about the ones we do know about. And really, nobody's been testing for those chemicals up until just recently. We just now started actually requiring water suppliers, for example, to even start testing and looking for these chemicals. And even then, we still don't necessarily have enforceable standards in a lot of places for what, what is acceptable for having this chemical in the water. And so in, in reality, those of us out there uh, are basically consuming the water are, are kind of being used as guinea pigs to see what happens you know, to folks that are exposed to, this, to these chemicals. And unfortunately, in a lot of places like in the United States, we tend to be more reactive. And we, we kind of wait to see how much data is accumulating about these chemicals before we actually start to take action to regulate them. The chemical that I talk about in the book Exposure and that you see uh, depicted in the film Dark Waters or the documentary The Devil We Know, the chemical known as PFOA, it's just one of these PFAS chemicals. And what you see in that story, in those films and in the book, is how long it took for the information about just that one chemical to make its way out into the scientific community, to the regulators, to the public, to the point where you can actually start taking steps to regulate this chemical. Here's a chemical that was invented after World War II, was being put into massive use worldwide as early as the early 1950s, and it really, the information about the toxicity, the health threat was being developed by the companies internally during the 60s and 70s, yet the information about the, the threat from that chemical didn't start to make its way out to the rest of the world until late 1990s, early 2000s, when, when litigation and lawsuits began. And then even then, it's now been 20 years since that information first started to come out, and we are still waiting for enforceable federal drinking water standards for just that one chemical. It just really highlights how difficult and slow the process is in the United States to regulate chemicals, even once we know that they're there and once we know that they pose a serious threat to human health and to the environment, it still is a painstakingly slow process. And, you know, unfortunately, because of that, 
uh, people end up having to go into court you know, to get clean water and to get relief. And that, as a lawyer, I'll be the first one to tell you that sh that's not the way it should happen. People shouldn't have to do that. But because this is such a slow process, that's what's historically happened. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to, to bring this story out through the book and the films is so that people could realize this is the way it really works. Even when you have a dangerous chemical, that poses significant threat to human health and the environment. Even when the facts are known, look how difficult and how long it takes to move through the process to actually get safety standards set to protect people. And is that the way we should be proceeding or should we be doing it in a different way? And I think we see a lot of discussion now occurring worldwide that we need to think of maybe better ways to be protecting people moving forward. I prefer that slow process, and you perhaps you know educate me on the process for getting a chemical accepted in terms of regulation. But I would prefer that slowness to take part, you know, before something is to market and in our water systems. Once we know something's wrong, it feels like only logical, or even just have doubts. If you have a doubt, it seems like the phasing out process should be a lot quicker. It seems seems like it's avoiding costs, but it doesn't avoid any cost. Yeah, you know what, I think one of the concepts you touched on there uh, is often referred to as the precautionary principle, you know, that it's just a matter of common sense that if you have information suggesting a chemical, say like PFOA, poses a risk, you know, a serious risk to human health or the environment, shouldn't you take action then at that point when you have that information to make sure the harm doesn't occur and to make sure that people don't get sick, don't develop cancers, take action before it's too late? Or should you wait until you have 110% absolute certainty and whatever is considered to be final proof that the chemical causes those harms? In other words, waiting for the people to develop cancer, waiting for those studies to be done that confirm the disease or the human impact before you, you start to take those actions. And there's a real tension, unfortunately, in the US legal system, you know, where the burden is really put on the exposed person. If somebody is exposed to a dangerous chemical in their water, they're told it's their burden to prove that that chemical is actually causing them any harm. They are the ones who have to show that the chemical is harmful and at what level and did they had, been, had they been exposed to enough and unfortunately, that's, that's an incredibly difficult burden. You often need major studies involving tens of thousands of people, and those, those studies can cost millions of dollars. And so an individual person often doesn't have the resources to do that. That's why the, the case that you see in the film, Dark Waters, and that we talk about in the book, that, you know, the, the, the situation down along the Ohio River involving PFOA was so unusual because it was one of the only times in US history where the people who were exposed were able to, to gather the information, all of the scientific data to confirm that this chemical was in fact causing them harm and to get, to get relief for that, to get their clean water, to get relief for the people that were they're injured. It's very difficult to do that. And again, that's one of the discussions I think that's that the, the story, the films are prompting is, is that the way 
you know, that we should be addressing environmental exposures like this? Is it fair to put the burden on the exposed person to have to, to, to come forward with evidence that oftentimes is almost impossible for them to collect? It seems like they've created like enough wiggle room to, well, yeah, you're so all sick, but maybe there's something else in the atmosphere. You know, you were exposed to other things. And so I wonder what your feelings are about earth law. I know it has its own complications, but I guess it makes it possible if you can show that the, the river is poisoned or, or whatever the, the soil is poisoned, then earth has its rights to not be contaminated. I've seen some discussions about those concepts, you know, that there should be fundamental rights to uh, clean water or to, you know, uncontaminated environment. And again, I think, unfortunately, what you see is a lot of tension, though, between some of those basic concepts that a lot of people may think make perfect sense and our legal system. You know, for example, in the United States, you have federal agencies like the United States Environmental Protection Agency that is authorized to give people permission through permits, for example, to emit things into the air, into the water, to put hazardous or toxic contaminants into the ground in landfills. So you have this tension between these concepts, you know, that, that, that we should have this completely pollutant-free environment versus an existing system that, that seems to suggest the opposite. So there's a real debate going on right now, again, these are, these are ideas and concepts, I think, that a lot of folks are, are really wanting to explore in a lot further detail uh, to see if there's a way to harmonize them. As an environmental studies major, it's not really the first time, you know, I'm hearing about corporations and industries, like, hiding the pollution that they're doing from, like, the communities that live nearby. Oftentimes, like we saw here, they have, like, the power to, like, hire their own lawyers and professionals. How can people fight against these really powerful corporations that know what they're doing and know who to hire and know how to kind of maneuver their way around the system, knowing that they're more likely to win against, you know, your average person who has your average job and your average side where you can't really, you know, pay an expensive lawyer or doesn't have access to a lawyer because they don't know where to begin. Those are, those are great questions. And, you know, I think one of the things hopefully that people take away from seeing the film Dark Waters or the story in the book Exposure is that it can be done. You know, people, even a single individual, somebody like Mr. Tennant, all right, in West Virginia, has the ability to stand up, speak out and demand that things be different. And it may take a long time and it may be incredibly difficult to do, but you can take on some of the biggest powers out there, huge multinational corporations, the, the federal government, state governments, you know, it, what, what seem like immovable <laughs> systems of regulation, and science, and, and, and legal structures. And even with the legal system, you can take that on and you can change those things. When, and this is a great example of that, where People in the community who others might say, there's no way they could take these forces on. There's, you know, the, nobody's going to listen to them. With persistence and determination, it can be done. And as long as you stick to it and have the, the, the determination to, to get the story out, 
And, and if you're able to get the facts out, I'm a firm believer that if you're able to show people the actual facts, the actual information, the real data about what is really happening, let them see the information for themselves, they'll do the right thing. They will eventually, it might take a while to come around, but they will eventually see, and particularly if you can get the story out to enough people to understand what's happening and to get folks talking about it and everybody you know, coming together and saying, this is something that is wrong and it needs to be fixed. It can be done. And we're seeing that now with, with PFAS. Again, it took quite some time, but we are now seeing things I never thought we would see with the president of the United States now talking about needing to address these chemicals nationwide, allocating billions of dollars to try to address these problems, seeing legislation being proposed at the federal level for the first time and states all across the country, international bodies now talking about treaties and phases out and bans and things of that nature. So it can happen. And hopefully it's inspiring to, if you see this story to know that with determination, change can, change can occur. I think it is so inspiring. I think not just for young lawyers or young litigants, if they're exposed to this in their communities or in their environments, but just also for activists in, in different fields, because maybe not everyone is able to, to fight such a long fight. You know, President of Earth Day, Kathleen Rogers said to me, she had been in environmental law, but then she diversified into activism where maybe she could see results or have a few different movements going on. In, is, uh, as opposed to the space of time it might take for a long legal case. But it's uh, just great on so many levels. And I think that you're a hero to, to many as well. And it, as well as providing a warning shot to corporations that they, they can't get away with it. So perhaps it does, it's preventative too. Well, I think, you know, if, one of, the, one of the, uh, the positive aspects of having the story finally get out as well is we're hearing from other companies, you know, who have seen this story now and are saying things like, we want to learn from this to make sure that we don't repeat some of the problems. How do we make sure a situation like this doesn't happen in a company like ours? How do we make sure that when, if there's a serious problem developing within our company, that that information makes its way to the right people who can take steps to fix it and stop it before it becomes a major problem. So I, I think, you know, getting stories like this out to people so that they understand, you know, not only that these things are happening, but that these things can be fixed and can be changed and can lead to tremendous improvements in the way our, our systems operate. I, I think we see that happening not just you know in the regulatory world, but also in the corporate world, that, that people are taking lessons from that. We already are seeing companies that are stepping forward and announcing that, for example, they are voluntarily committing not to use these chemicals in their products, even if they haven't been officially regulated yet, that they're nevertheless responding to the public, to consumers who are saying, we don't want these in our environment. We don't want these chemicals in us. And, you know, that's driving market change. So it, it can, these types of changes can happen on multiple levels. 
not just in the regulatory world or the scientific world, but also in the corporate world as well. And on a lighter note, or and it must be kind of, you know, strange to see your your story and the story of the the people that you advocated on behalf brought to the screen in dark waters. I'm wondering, you know, what it's compressing twenty years of your life and the challenges you faced along the way. So, what were your thoughts on the portrayal by Mark Ruffalo and how the film also conveyed the complexities of the story? You know, I, I, I can't speak highly enough of Mark Ruffalo and, and what he was able to accomplish with the film. I mean, he just did an amazing job. You know, he reached out to me after reading the story that appeared in the New York Times Magazine back in 2016 about this situation down in West Virginia along the Ohio River and was really shocked when he read about it because it was, it was really highlighting an environmental contamination problem that had potentially, you know, nationwide, if not worldwide implications, but that he had never heard of. And, you know, he was active in the environmental uh, arena and active in water issues and was surprised that he had not heard of this before and really wanted to find a way to, to help bring the story out to a wider audience so that we could hopefully uh, start seeing some change in the way they, these types of uh, situations not only develop, but how we deal with them. He was able to team up with the folks at Participant Media, who, if you, if you go on their website and see the types of films they've produced, just incredible filmmakers, teamed up with Todd Haynes, who's an incredible director and just a terrific cast, Anne Hathaway and Tim Robbins and others. And really, they were very dedicated to making sure they did this story and brought it to film in the right way to show what really happened, not only you know, legally and scientifically, but also to real people, what these situations, have, what kind of impact they have on real people in real communities, what these people went through for 20 years in this community, waiting for this process to unfold. So I think they did a tremendous job in taking a very complicated story that involves a lot of science and a lot of law and conveying it in a way that really impresses upon people why this is a story that matters to all of us and why this is a story that really is one that hopefully is inspiring because as we discussed, it shows that things can be changed. Thing, things that look impossible <laughs> you know, can be overcome. No, it really is. And it makes us think about the future. And I guess, well, I always have like mixed feelings about the future because I always feel like, oh, well, you found one story and there, there's maybe other ones we don't know about. So I think about the phasing out of some chemicals and then are there other ones going on the market? And I'm a positive person. So I'm wondering what your feelings are on, you know, regulations now and, and what, you know, different companies are doing that you kind of touched on, you know, and how can we as consumers also be more aware, even if we're not, you know, living next to these plants or things are being, chemicals are being made or in our water streams, how, how can we be aware? Because it might be on our, the, the utensils in our kitchens, you know, how can we just be safer? Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's not easy, frankly, to find out what types of products these chemicals have been used in in the past or who might still be using them. Because, frankly, a lot of the information about these chemicals was, was covered up and withheld for decades by the people making these chemicals. And a lot of the folks that were purchasing products sort of downstream didn't even realize 
that these chemicals were in these materials that they were using in their products. So if you went into a store, you know, you weren't going to see PFOA or PFOS listed as ingredients, you know, on, on a product or on a product label or on warning labels. That's slowly starting to change, you know, that, that information's starting to kind of get out there. But it's still incredibly difficult to know what products these materials were used in. There are a number of companies, as I mentioned, that are voluntarily coming forward and saying, we are not going to use these. We're going to phase these out. You know, fast food wrapper, you know, fast food companies are announcing that they're not going to use these chemicals in their wrapping or packaging anymore. Clothing retailers, cosmetic companies, you know, a lot of folks are committing not to use them. And it's not easy as a consumer to try to find out, you know, where these chemicals are used. There are some great organizations out there that are trying to make that kind of information available, like the Green Science Policy Institute in Berkeley, or Environmental Working Group, Center for Environmental Health, Safer States, different organizations like that, that are trying to say, here's the types of products these chemicals might be in that you might want to ask your retailer, you know, are you using these chemicals? And there have been campaigns orchestrated to have consumers be able to fill out forms and send that information in the manufacturers asking them, you know, can you provide us information about whether you use these or not? And again, that's starting to result in some real change in what these, what a lot of companies are using moving forward. I read the New York Times article that was published 2016, and they did mention that you had uh, extensive background in knowing about chemicals and laws that had to do with the environment. It made me ask myself, how different would have the outcome of this 20-year process have been if you didn't know how to look at these documents? Obviously, PFOA was a new chemical that no one had really known about. Uh, you know, I think uh, there were a lot of things that had to align just right for the story to have worked out the way it did. One of those was being fortunate to be at the law firm I was at, and I frankly am still at. I'm still at the Taft Law Firm now in my 32nd year there. But, you know, I was at a firm that allowed me to take the time I needed to read through all of these documents. You know, I did not have any scientific background. I went to a liberal arts uh, college and studied political science and urban studies. No scientific background whatsoever. After I graduated from law school, I joined our environmental group. And a lot of what I was doing from the first eight years or so of my practice was helping our, our, our corporate clients, a lot of them big chemical companies, you know, try to navigate the complex environmental world of environmental law with different federal and state regulations and rules. So I was learning all of those that first eight years or so. And so when I started digging into this case, I assumed that I knew what, how that world worked, that if something was hazardous or toxic or bad, it was on a list, you know, created either by the US EPA or the state. So if there was something bad, you looked on this list and it would tell you. That, whether that was a bad chemical, and if so, how, how much of it was allowed to be out in the environment. It was when I started digging in and reading these documents that I realized there were chemicals <laughs> that were made to be just as bad that weren't on those lists, that had gone under the radar of that entire system. And really, I, I had to spend a lot of time reading these documents and rereading them, and also 
I was fortunate that our, that our firm you know, was able to allow me to retain experts. I had to build a team of people that could help me understand these documents. Because again, without my, I was not a scientist. So I had to hire analytical chemists, epidemiologists, toxicologists, risk assessors, people that could help me understand what I was reading. Because these were complicated documents created by one of the world's most sophisticated chemical companies. And if they were talking about chemicals I had never heard of, using names like perfluorooctanoic acid and, and such that I had no idea what any of that meant. So it was a long process. It was very time consuming. But again, it was, I was fortunate that I was at a firm that allowed me to spend the time needed and to, to, to retain the type of team I needed to help understand all of that. I think if, if this had been something that, you know, somebody at another firm that maybe didn't have the resources, you know, wasn't, wasn't allowed to spend as much time, wasn't allowed to retain all those experts, who knows uh, how this would have developed, you know, whether any of this ever would have come out. So it was incredibly fortunate, you know, that I was at a firm that allowed us to do what was necessary to really understand these materials and understand what was going on with them. As someone who studies the environment, this interview with Rob Billet was highly insightful. It's not the first time I'm learning about corporations knowingly polluting the environment and negatively affecting the health of the citizens nearby. However, many of the instances I've learned about were from the community's perspective and not the lawyers, which is why I find this interview fascinating. I found it interesting how he emphasized the time throughout the interview. First, these chemicals are not old. They have been around for less than a century. However, in the short time they've existed, they have dealt a large amount of damage to the public and environmental health. Second, Rob stressed how long the process of getting a chemical noticed and outlawed. In this case, two decades. And honestly, it is insane how we don't prioritize public and environmental health more. Thousands of people are dying of sicknesses that could have been avoided, but it is easy to continue putting them at risk because these are corporations put little value on human life. It is very inspiring to learn about this case and see how everyone continues to fight for their health and the environment, especially when it is easy to lose hope when going against such powerful corporations and knowing that they have more options. There have been multiple occasions in which citizens are forced to stop their battle or aren't given a chance to even begin to fight because they don't have the accessibility or money. Nevertheless, as Rob said, it is essential to start the fight even locally because you never really know what traction it can get and what change can result. Now back to the interview. this experience where you have taken on these cases and you know how long the time commitment in real terms because when you set out I imagine it's a bit different you don't have the feeling of the that's going to take a long time so what is your criteria you know when the case is brought to you whether you take it on or maybe you advise them to go somewhere else who can deal with it what is your criteria for litigation and advice to environmental lawyers I don't know if we necessarily have a set criteria so to speak when I first met with Mr. Tennant back in 1998, and we we're trying to decide, you know, whether or not this was something we could help him on. And again, I go into a lot more detail in that in the book, Exposure, this, this whole process. You know, at that time, we had no idea that this was going to involve some unregulated chemical that was contaminating the whole world. 
you know, and that would involve, you know, an entire family of unregulated chemicals. At that time, back in 1998, when we first met with Mr. Tennant, we assumed, hey, this was a rather narrow, straightforward situation. It was one family that was having some contamination next to a landfill that had a permit from the state of West Virginia. And so I felt that this would be a rather um, easy case to take on because I helped companies get permits to run landfills. And I assumed if there were bad or nasty chemicals in that landfill, they would be listed on the permit. And we would be able to probably dig into those documents and relatively quickly find out, hey, there's probably something being emitted higher than what's allowed under the permit. So when we first took this on, we thought it was a fairly narrow issue involving one small family. In later years, and you see this depicted in the film, Dark Waters, we got to a very different decision point when we had realized this went beyond just Mr. Tennant's property, that we were dealing now with a chemical that was likely contaminating the drinking water of the entire community, tens of thousands of people. And we were going to need to, to take this on as a class. That was a you know, much more difficult decision. It was a very difficult one to make. But again, I was fortunate to be at a firm that realized the importance of what we were dealing with, that we had information about a massive public health threat. And we needed to do what we can uh, to make sure that that information got out, that these people were protected, and that we had the ability to do that. So we, we made the decision to take that case on. And I don't know if there were a lot of other firms that necessarily would have made that same decision back then. And even now, you know, we've continued to make decisions like that. We, we filed a new case in 2018 for trying to represent folks who have not just PFOA, but all of these PFOS chemicals in their blood to try to get new scientific studies, monitoring, scientific panels set up to confirm exactly what this larger group of chemicals are doing. We, we just got a ruling from a court in Ohio certifying us to represent millions of people now with these chemicals in their blood. So there have been a series of decisions made, and each time we have to make that decision based on the unique facts of the case in the unique situation. So that not really a, a set standard formula that we follow. In terms of corporations or manufacturers cleaning up their act, I'm always happy to he hear about it. And there's another side of it where you feel like, oh, is it greenwashing? Is it is it just counterbalancing, but not really correcting the core problem? So what are some success stories? How has DuPont evolved their practices or other companies that you find positive going forward? Yeah, you that's know, not sure I, I can point to really many positive uh, <laughs> developments, unfortunately, in the PFOS world, because what we saw happen with, let's take PFOA, for example, when the information finally got out to regulators, the scientific community, the, the public about the, the hazards of PFOA, there was a positive development when the companies all decided, the ones that were still making that chemical, that they would stop making that chemical. In 2006, they entered into an agreement to phase out any further manufacture of PFOA in the United States. A good thing. That was, that was good. Uh, they were given 10 years to do that phase out, that the phase out would be finished by 2015. Unfortunately, what we saw happen was during that phase out, 
of PFOA, the, the chemical in this family that has eight carbons, also called a C8 because of that, eight carbons. What happened is that some of these companies started bringing out replacement chemicals. And unfortunately, they were fairly similar to the ones that they were phasing out. For example, DuPont. Once they started phasing out the manufacture of PFOA, they started making a PFOA replacement chemical they called GenX. And this was a chemical that instead of eight carbons, had six. In other words, they took two of the carbons off and started making this GenX replacement chemical. And that chemical was then used to make some of these same products like Teflon that had been used, that they had been using PFOA in the past. Unfortunately, as the, the scientists start looking into these new replacement chemicals, what we're seeing is a lot of them share some of the same toxicity characteristics and concerns as the old ones. You hear them referred to as regrettable substitutions. For Gen X, for example, when the first cancer study came back, looking at the effects of the chemical on rats, they found that it caused the exact same three tumors in rats that PFOA did. So you now have scientists that are saying, maybe we need to look at the entire class of these chemicals instead of trying to regulate them and address them one at a time and take 20 years for each of these hundreds, if not thousands of chemicals, can we address them in a more comprehensive way? So that's a positive development that people are now talking about, is there a new way or is there a different way we should be approaching how we regulate these? So even though this regrettable substitution was not necessarily a favorable thing that happened, it's leading to some positive discussions about looking for different and better ways to address chemicals in, in not only the United States, but worldwide. It's like two steps forward, one step back. It makes me wonder, why do we need these substitutions? I mean, what is the great benefit that we have to expose ourselves? Because we don't have unlimited freshwater supply. Well, you know, that, that is a discussion that's going on right now, where, again, some of these groups that I mentioned earlier, like Green Science Policy Institute or Environmental Working Group, I mean, they have tried to, to, to present information in, in, uh, about this whole concept of, do we really need these chemicals? You know, is it necessary to have these in certain products? Are these things that we absolutely are vital, you know, to, to, to our lives, or are they simply things we like to have? In other words, where can we start reducing the use of these things? And again, that's a discussion that's going on worldwide right now. And it's, I think it's a good discussion. Shouldn't these agencies like the EPA have a stronger system set in place to stop corporations from lying or hiding what they're doing? It's, it's an incredibly complex process. And again, one of the things I try to explore more in the book and explain is how this happens. You know, you, you sit back and you look at this, you think, how does something like this happen in the United States during our lifetime? And essentially, nobody even knows it's happening. And then once we do, we, we do finally realize this happened. Why is it taking so long <laughs> to fix this or to regulate these chemicals? And I think what, what's really become, what really people are starting to, to, to focus on and realize is we've got some systemic problems, you know, in the way in which we regulate chemicals, in the way in which, you know, 
data and science is generated that's necessary to move through this process. You know, there are some real hurdles and impediments to, to, to doing this. And hopefully we're gonna come up with some solutions and fixes to this. But having people aware that this is the way it actually works. You know, this is the way this process works. That's critical, that's step one. Because I think a lot of folks, again, as we talked about earlier, just assume, you know, if there's something dangerous, it's regulated. There are these agencies that are out there that are doing all of this. You know, the reality is the agencies first have to be made aware that these chemicals exist. And unfortunately, they don't always have the information. You know, as we see with PFOA, for example, the manufacturers may have that information and just not disclose it or give it to them until it's forced out. And then what, unfortunately, you're dealing with a situation where you've got agencies that oftentimes are massively overworked and don't have the staffing, don't have the funding. You know, when you're talking about, for example, all these new chemicals that are coming out every day, all this information going into these agencies that are trying to get through all of this, and analyze all of this, it's almost impossible to keep up with. So it's, it's just a very difficult problem and one that I, I think a lot of folks are rightly focused on right now, trying to figure out how do we fix this? Now that we know this problem is there, you know, how do we go about fixing it? And who should be paying for this? That's one of the big debates going on right now. You know, this is not a problem that we, the exposed people, created. You know, this is a problem, frankly, that some corporations, particularly if you're looking at the PFOA, P PFOS problem, that some, some corporations made a lot of money selling and making these materials and pumping them out into the environment, knowing that they would result in the kind of contamination problems we're dealing with now. You know, why should the public be spending billions of dollars to clean this mess up now or to fix these problems? Why shouldn't the ones who made the problem be the ones paying these bills? And that's a huge debate going on right now is who should pay to fix the problem? And I think it's likely to, uh, to be a debate that we see go on for quite some time. And sometimes you can't really pay, you know, not when people have lost their lives or their health has been seriously damaged. It's only just like a false equivalence. And it's it's nice to see some kind of monetary payment as, as you've been successful in that, but it is only kind of putting a value on people's lives and the health of our planet. In some ways, I feel like I want us to improve our regulatory models and eliminate these uh, contaminants from our environment. On another level, it's also like a philosophical question. It seems like in America and around the world, there's this high price put on novelty and profit. And sometimes things like the health of ourselves and our planet are just neglected. I, I think we need a rethink. No, I, I would agree. I mean, we need to really fully capture the costs of these things. One of the concepts I know we hear discussed a lot, particularly with respect to this example of PFOA, let's use that as the example, is externalizing the cost. You know, the costs, the companies that are making this particular chemical or putting it into the products, you know, we're not necessarily capturing the true costs of making that product because we're not taking into account what it costs to then clean up what's left out there in our soil, in our water in our blood, 
in the health impacts to the entire world from exposure to these chemicals. And you know, those costs are basically being externalized onto all of us. How do we better capture that and say, you know, okay, if we are going to continue to make these things, if there is a societal value, you know, to having these materials, how do we make sure that all of those costs are properly captured? And again, that's, that's a difficult, difficult problem. So as you think about the future, this planet, education, the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, what were some life lessons that were important for you? What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? Yeah, I think one of the things I guess I have learned along the way is it's incredibly important to be able to step outside your comfort zone. You know, don't necessarily assume just because this is the way it's always been done, that that's the way you've got to do it yourself. You know, be open to new ideas, be willing to take a risk and to try to do something differently. If you see something that isn't working, even though that's always the way it's been done, or that some huge entity on the other side is, is, is doing whatever it is that's always been done that way, it can be changed. And as long as you have the, the dedication and the persistence to, to see it through, it can happen. It can be done. And anybody that's thinking, for example, of a legal career, you know, I would encourage you, you know, to be able, once you have that legal license, you, know, you can help create what that job will look like. Again, you, you don't necessarily have to feel like you have to fit into one particular mold or another. Be willing to take the risks. Be willing to, if you see something that needs to be changed, be willing to, to take it on and change it. It can be done. And as you think about the people you've advocated for, this planet, the water, the soil, what are your reflections on the beauty and wonder of the natural world? You know, I, I've met so many incredible people, people like Wilbur Tennant and his family and Joe Kiger and his family and the folks there in those communities along the Ohio River who were so intimately connected to the environment, to the natural world, to you know, their farm, to the animals there, that this was not some disconnected part of the world. This was their life. This, they lived and breathed in that, in that environment with these animals. Just really impressed upon me how interconnected all of that is. And, you know, realizing something like with the PFAS uh, chemical problem, we're all interconnected in this way. I mean, we, this is something coursing through the veins of all of us and in our natural world and really impresses upon you, I think, the interconnectedness of what we do as humans and its potential impact and on, on a massive scale to the world around us. And that things we do can have lasting consequences in our, our, our natural world. You know, these, these forever chemicals that we've all been using, you know, this stuff is going to last for thousands, if not millions of years. So we are altering our natural world. We're altering humans, you know, by putting these chemicals out there. But we also have the ability and the power, in my view, to do something about that, to fix that and to take steps to improve the environment. So hopefully the interaction works both ways.
Thank you, Rob, a lot for your important work leading to the regulation of environmental contaminants, advancing understanding of their influence on human health and disease, and helping protect our planet for future generations. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking with you. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer of this podcast was Diana Gonzalez. Digital media coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in the One Planet podcast or learn more about environmental projects, click on the subscribe button. Thank you for listening.